Welcome to Disco Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Holger Seim, who's the co-founder and CEO of Blinkist. This is a company that connects 15 million plus readers worldwide to the biggest ideas from best-selling nonfiction books via 15-minute audio and text. Their whole mission is to help people fit more learning into their lives. And in this episode, we go through a lot of different topics, including how Holger and his co-founders decided to choose Blinkist over all the other ideas they were looking at at the time, raising their initial funding, what they've done for customer acquisition, how they test different things on the homepage, for instance, questions investors ask later on when you're raising additional rounds of funding, how Holger and his co-founders look at splitting equity and the roles between, between the founders, why Holger thinks more startups should hire an HR generalist early on, this idea of rich versus king and why Holger and his co-founders veer towards keeping control, some of the books Holger recommends and so much more as always the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an apple podcast this episode is brought to you by hawk media a full service outsourced cmo based in santa monica california providing guidance planning and execution to grow brands of all sizes industries and business models hawk media is recognized by inc as one of the fastest growing marketing consultancies and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Holger Sign, the co-founder and CEO of Blinkist. Holger, welcome to the show. Hi, Justin. Happy to be here. Yes, great to have you on. I heard of Blinkist many many years ago. I was like, oh, that's just such a great concept. But I uh, I know many people aren't familiar necessarily with it or even how it got started. So for, first off, what is Blinkist? What are all the things you kind of offer today as it stands? Sure, uh, happy to explain it. Um, Blinkist helps you to fit more learning into your lives. We, we take nonfiction books. You know, everyone out there wants to read more books, wants to um, learn more on an ongoing basis doesn't have the time and uh, we help people to fit more learning into their lives by taking the key insights from non-fiction books and bringing them into a format that they can easily read or listen to in 15 minutes um, that all gets delivered via a nice app a nice user experience uh, that helps you with picking with finding the right books through personalization recommendation and that's that that's all all we do that's amazing. And it does make it so much easier. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, it seems like a, a really simple idea. A lot of, lot of people we talked to uh, um, told us, yeah, I had this idea once as well. So it's not a groundbreaking idea, but, but no one has ever done it. And um, but everyone kind of uh, has a need for it, which is, which is quite nice. Absolutely. And they obviously have done a tremendous job executing to me to make this into what it is today with, I mean, it's like 15 million users. I mean, it's grown tremendously in these last eight years or so. Uh, going back to the beginning, though, I know uh, from doing my research, uh, there's a variety of ideas you're kind of looking at or your, your co-founders are kind of knew you wanted to start something. How did you end up on Blinkist? How did you start Blinkist? So, yeah, I know my co-founders from university. We um, had a habit of 
always looking out, watching out for ideas that are worth um, worth um, building a company around. And one of the things we got back to again and again was we um, we wanted to. We were avid readers, so we wanted to read more, but it was harder and harder to find all the time. And we were always kind of gravitating towards doing something around learning because we we love the concept of yeah of being a lifelong learner and um, uh, whether that is through books or through other formats. And then eventually um, we realized, well, it's not just us who have the problem uh, of wanting to read more, wanting to learn more, but, but not finding the time. It's um, almost everyone out there. And back in 2011, when we had the idea, um, we realized that smartphones were uh, booming. More and more people were buying smartphones and interacting with apps. So we said, like, look, everyone is seems to have time because everyone is consuming content on smartphones, uh, but they tell us they don't have time. Uh, um, so it's, it's probably not time, it's pro- more accessibility and format. And that's this was a, a moment where we realized, well, there, there is something here. There is a, a really clearly articulated customer problem. There is a, um, a market opportunity that um, user habits change through the adoption of smartphones. Um, so let's let's go in there and, and build something that brings together the new possibilities through smartphones with a with an old problem of users. And understanding this problem, so you, you understand like this is a need. You kind of experience it yourselves personally, and you're seeing it as well, where people you know they had the time, and kind of all these things are coming together to make this idea a clear. Okay, let's go after this. I'm curious as to what were some of the first things you did, I mean, what, what did you do to kind of get this off the ground? Because there's a lot of ways to go about building a business. I'm curious back then, you know, 2012, 2011, what you did for Blinkist. I mean, first, we were really new to the game. We haven't started a real company before. So we thought, well, we, we need to raise money uh, to, um, to, to be able to hire some people and, and get things uh, going. So first thing we did was we created a business plan in form of a pitch deck. Uh, we thought, okay, how can we you know, how can this look like in terms of an app? How can the content look like? How can we market it? We put all of that together, did some um, user research. We created some um, some books and plinks, um, tested them with users, users did um, surveys and all of that, and then took all of that data um, and went pitching for investors. And um, that was in, we did all of that in spring 2012 and had a, um, had a funding in June 2012. Based on an idea, we didn't have a product. Um, we had, I think, five titles uh, blinked um, <laughs> in Word documents, basically, um, and some mock-ups, mock-ups how it could look like in a product. Um, and that's yeah, all it took to to raise funding back back in the days. <laughs> and um, what we did then is to start building an app and start scaling our content library. Um, to we, we we said back then we want to have an iOS app and we want to have. Um, at least 50 titles to launch with. Um, and we reached that milestone in January 2013 and, and launched first in Germany because we're Berlin-based and we thought it would be easier to get some traction in Germany. But then end of 2013, we also um, expanded into the English-speaking world. With with that as well, understanding that this is the idea you have. There's an unlimited amount in theory of of books, and there's so many books out there. How are you going about picking? Uh, what list are you looking at to pick which books? And then also with these breakdowns, I mean, how are you going about that process? I'm really curious about that. I mean, so like back then when we started, we we said let's have you know let let's find the 50 bestsellers that everyone has top of mind that everyone wanted to read. Uh, think of like for example, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of yep. the probably 
the most successful and most prominent self-help books. Um, so we thought of such books and um, gathered a list of 50. Um, nowadays, um, because we, we add now, I mean, we started with 50 back then. Right now we add 50 per month. Um, uh, we look at new releases. Um, we look at um, at bestseller lists, at um, when people discuss books on Goodreads, uh, when journalists uh, do book reviews. So basically we take all the information that we can get, that we can find um, to, to build a short list. And then we look have a look at the, the books ourselves uh, that we think are interesting to determine whether they're really interesting and whether we want to um, yeah, add them to our library. Because that curation aspect is very important. That's one of the things that our users value because they they have a lack of time, so they don't want to read through 100 titles that get published every month, but want us right. to to curate and select the top five titles in every in any category. So um, this is how curation works, basically. As you, there's no magic machine learning algorithm that that crawls the <laughs> internet, but it's really just um, just research. And um, I mean, we've we've learned a thing or two um, about which books um, are good in the in the last years. We, we've read a lot, uh, so that certainly helps. But it's still um, simple research. Um, Just he human beings crawl on the internet and stuff. Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> uh, and then, um, in regards to process, um, we we do work with a pool of freelance experts. So we um, a good reader um, uh, for Blinkist is someone who um, has a subject matter expertise. So when it's about a business book, it should be a person that you know you know has some some depth in, in business through university, through um, professional experience. And it should be a person that is highly analytical, that um, can really um, easily yeah, grasp information and, and find uh, um, a, a good structure. Because some books have a really good structure and you can technically just take the chapters and say these are different blinks. But a lot of books uh, don't have a structure that... Uh, that um, caters to um, to be the structure for playing. So we really need to dig deeper and, and see what is what is the structure that we need to create to um, yeah provide a good storyline um, for that book and Blinks so uh, users can can easily follow and then quickly grasp the concepts uh, when they read it um, on the go and when they also have certain breaks because sometimes you don't read or listen to um, book and blinks in one go. You just, you know, read two blinks in, in four minutes and then stop uh, because your train arrives and then continue to read a little later. So, um, yeah, we need to um, meet our customers where they are with the format. And with that format too, I'm, I'm assuming it, it's maybe evolved since the beginning. Like, What did it look like initially in terms of what you decided the format was going to be? I know you mentioned you want to obviously have it be a shorter thing, 15 minutes or so, something quicker people could consume. Like That's the whole concept it's built off of. What was the initial kind of format that you had and how has that evolved to today based on uh, your lessons and learnings? I mean, the, the format was like the, the core structure was uh, like it is today. We broke down um, a book into its key insights um, and per key insight, we reserved a blink. Um, so one book in blinks, they, they technically has on average 10 blinks that represent 10 different key insights from that book. Um, and that structure hasn't changed. So you will always find um, yeah, um, a book of blinks uh, um, consists of different chapters, which we call blinks. Um, the thing that has changed is how we write those blinks. So, you know, what language we use, um, how we yeah, use simpler language to uh, make it easier um, to, to grasp for people when they don't have full focus, um, how we yeah, build more storytelling elements in there to make it 
more engaging to follow um and um yeah a lot of a lot of things um in this regard when it comes to how the content is written or uh, recorded because right, right now biggest use case is audio um so um 70 of our customers rather listen than read um and yeah this is um there there a lot a lot of things happened in this regard but the the, the basic structure stayed the same Yeah, I was always wondering about that, even when I saw it a while ago, of of the the reading these versus going to be just listening to the kind of insights as well. One thing I'm curious about too is with what you're doing with these books and everything, what is the structure of like is it a licensing agreement? Like, how is this uh, where you use using this content and the titles and everything? How does that work from like a legal or licensing perspective? For sure. So we our format doesn't infringe any copyrights. We don't copy uh, text from the book uh, directly. Um, we just Uh, yeah, it's it's technically from a legal perspective like a review. We ha- yeah. let people read the book and then give us a review or give us their take on the key insights from that book. And the you you can't protect the ideas or the insights of the book. You can only protect uh, the way insights are, you know, presented in in terms of words, in terms of structures. And since we don't use the book structure nor use the book's words, we don't infringe copyrights. That being said, uh, for us, it's very <laughs> important to be um, to be a partner for authors and publishers. We we didn't start Blinkist to to cannibalize book sales. We still believe that um, yeah, books are great, and and people, in order to have a deep learning experience, people should engage with a with a full book. But sometimes it's hard to uh, for people to yeah get started to discover the right uh, title, um, or even when they discover a right title. To read it um, with with the right mindset, uh, and there, that's where Blinkist can help. We can help people to discover the right books, and then you kind of have deliver a primer that uh, helps them to read the book um, with more attention and with the right questions in mind, so they get 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 the most out of that book. And since we're um, adding value to uh, to the book market, we wanna yeah we wanna be a partner for authors and publishers. And we've, we're working with with the biggest publishers already. Not, not every, not all of them. Uh, some of them are still skeptical whether Blinkist <laughs> um, is cannibalizing books instead of promoting books. Uh, so it's a it's a long journey to get everyone on board and to convince everyone. But um, I'm proud to say that yeah, we've come a long way in the last eight years and um, have relationships with all of the big uh, publishers already. And, and Holger, what are those conversations like, or what are you kind of pitching them on to? Understand, help help these big publishers understand that you're you are actually helping yeah. sell books because I imagine obviously there, you mentioned the skepticism. There's a, a, a number of people who would be skeptical. Like, what does that pitch look like, or what does that yeah. kind of sound like to be able to convince them that hey, we're actually going to help you yeah. as well? So first of all, book discovery is broken. Like, it's so hard to discover new books if you don't have a a, a friend uh, who uh, is you know who reads a lot and knows <laughs> the taste uh, and can always recommend yeah. you um, a good book. And some of us have that friend. Um, It's really hard to find your next read. That that's one that's one challenge, and neither Amazon nor publishers have have, have, have solved that yet. Um, and then publishers, especially when I mean we're focused on nonfiction, and for nonfiction, it's uh, also challenging for publishers because um, you know if everyone who said they wanted to read more would actually read and buy more books, publishers would have a much better business. So it's hard to. Um, 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 or it's challenging to, um, um, to 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 sell nonfiction books to people, and, and that's where we can help. We can help more people tap into nonfiction books and ultimately become avid readers and avid buyers. Um, that's our pitch, basically. So we do we do bring 
for, for people that are already avid book readers, we just help to solve the discovery issue and can give more awareness to their titles and match their titles with the right audience. And for people who are no avid readers anymore, we can bring them closer to become avid readers. We, we want, we, we, we're not turning all of the non-readers into readers, but still with the non-readers, we can make some revenue. So we, we basically extend the revenue pool for the industry and are uh, willing to share some of that with publishers in return for some, you know, um, for, for, for some things from them, obviously. So th that's a pitch, basically. We add to the market, we, we, we pay them a ref share, um, and um, yeah, ultimately promote um, promote their books to a to a wider audience. And and with the you talked a little bit about this already, but with the business model and the pricing, how has that evolved over time? What does it look like today in terms of the business model behind Blinkist and pricing and all? How you look at that? I mean, very early on, we tested um, subscription versus one time purchases. So we had a yeah, we just tested a transactional model, but uh, stopped that quite soon because we we realize it doesn't work for for many reasons from a consumer perspective paying you know say two euros for a 15 minute read or listen wasn't very satisfying you know it was like <laughs> um, um kind of money um uh for 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 something for a short interaction um yeah. but uh, paying um 80 euros or um, uh, 100 um a year um, for full access to a library of more than 4,000 titles is a much better, um, <laughs> much more, more compelling proposition. And then you, you do it once and then you start reading or listening and you don't, you don't always have these micro moments of, I need to, uh, the, these micro decisions, I need to, do I really want to purchase this title? Do I really want to purchase that title? So we, we realized from a customer psychology, uh, a subscription model is much better. And obviously from a business point of view, it's also much better because it, Gives us much more predictable revenues, um, and you know, reengaging people for any two dollar to euro purchase again and again is, is hard to do uh, because the the basket size is so low um, that you can't really um, make that work. Um, so that was the biggest change. Basically, we said like we we tested both and then uh, went all in on the subscription model. We tested with pricing, with um, our free trial model, with the way we present our plans um, a lot and, and learned a lot of things there. Um, but um, so and one, one thing we learned there is um, um, to give a higher discount for an annual plan and put that annual plan front and center because, um, yeah. because it helps us to get a faster return on, um, on our marketing spend and, and spin the wheel faster. Absolutely. And that's something you've seen kind of, if you look around other, other companies, I'm kind of always looking at new companies just with the uh, nature of hosting a podcast daily and, and kind of what I'm always looking at. And there's a lot of people doing that same type of thing at this point. It's, it's like putting that annual plan kind of front and center and really yeah. having a subscription is just, I mean, it makes sense. Yes. From a business model yeah, it makes sense from a business model. And of course you could say it's, it's not as customer friendly because customers, you know, give them a monthly, you know, monthly plan gives them much more flexibility um, but then monthly plans, like the annual plan is highly discounted. And we learned that making people pay or making people pay more also is a stronger activator. So, you know, um, when you paid for it, you start using it more frequently. And since people want to read more and they want to use it, but still even with our product, sometimes they have a hard time because it's more engaging to watch a series on Netflix. We, <laughs> we realized that, um, yeah giving it a price uh, that is not too cheap can also help. Yeah, it's actually something right now I'm looking at uh, starting a paid community for uh, 
the Just Go Grind podcast and like podcast guests and VC back founders and such. And it's I used to be in a paid community where it's like a hundred bucks a month, and it was one of those things where you're paying for it, so you are so much more committed to engaging in the community and learning from it and trying to get the most value from it as possible. And I imagine it's kind of a similar thing with Blinkist, where people then are like going through way more titles and everything when they have committed this amount to it and really are focused on their learning because hey, I already dropped this money on it. Let's get the most out of this. Yeah. Definitely. And one of the things we haven't we haven't really talked about and kind of glossed over because I know I wanted to get an idea of of the product and business model and and, and one thing I mentioned earlier was you know, from your website it's like fifteen million people. How did you go about customer acquisition early on? So early on, like in the in the really early days, we we did a lot of grassroots um, acquisition. We just the goal was to get. Um, um, enough customers to try the product uh, and to give us feedback so we can improve. So we leveraged um, the community of our investors. We leveraged, you know, we went to startup events, did pitches. Uh, the, the good thing was that our early, you know, our early adopters were um, a lot of folks in the tech scene, a lot of young professionals. Um, and through our networks and through the um, startup ecosystem, we were able to reach out to those people um, um, for yeah, no cost or for very low cost. Um, that was that helped us in the seed stage to get a, a base of early adopters that uh, yeah, helped us to, to improve the product and, and make it to product market fit. And then eventually we started um, our paid acquisition journey. Eventually we had a tracking in place and, and um, I still remember in the beginning we were really shy to, and that was 2013, you know, it wasn't right now um, doing Facebook marketing is a commodity, but back then it still felt um, like, okay, now we have to spend money and we don't know whether we get a return. Um, um, yeah. And first of all, we need a tracking in place to, to measure whether we get a return. But eventually throughout um, yeah, 2013, 2014, we did more and more tests. We learned more and more lessons and, and we built conviction. And then I think mid 2014, we, we started to invest heavily um, and yeah, see great returns and started with Facebook, Instagram, because it's the easiest channel to crack, then extended to paid content platforms like Outbrain and Taboola, which are a perfect channel audience fit for us. Um, and then went into influencers, podcasts, um, and yeah, a lot of other channels by now. And with those different channels, like how are you looking at your kind of allocation between those and, and which ones are kind of paying off most? Because I, I, there are so many different acquisition channels and people who, you know, get creative. I had someone recently who was helping lead growth at Dropbox or Dropbox or Business. And he also did uh, a startup where he led growth there and did a great job with that. And there's so many ways to go about acquisition. How are you looking at allocation between channels or even the cohesion between, between all of them? I mean, we I mean, we're constantly learning. We don't have the perfect allocation yet. We we try to define or not. We try. We define targets per channel, um, and in those targets, we factor in uh, the different channel mic mechanics. For example, for a direct response channel like Facebook, you want to have a really um, high efficiency target because you don't get a lot of spillovers um, because people just scroll through the feed, um, and that's where you what you pay for. You pay per views. Um, and they don't give a lot of attention, um, so you, uh, um, you you don't want to. Yeah, you can't expect a lot of people seeing your ad and then not clicking, but but uh, uh, being reminded of you later on. You don't have a strong brand spillover on Facebook, but when when it's about influencers or podcasters, uh, you have a much stronger um, long term effect because you have hosts or influencers talking about your product to a highly engaged audience, so that audience will probably remember your brand name for much longer. And even, 
even though not everyone reacts immediately and and it's also hard to measure because it's you know you you no one can click on an ad in a podcast um, right. um you, you need to take this into account so we learned a lot you know through looking at do, doing some tests looking at uplifts that we saw and now can on a high level define different targets per per channel and with those tar- we give those targets to our channel managers and say spend as much as you can uh, for that efficiency target um <laughs> Yeah, but there's still a lot we have to learn. I think we were currently um, doing an exercise. We're getting external support from um, a really, um, um, really experienced data scientist to to challenge our attribution model and then to help us, you know, level it up. Uh, and maybe we'll learn something from there. Maybe we'll learn that we've had the wrong targets in, in some channels and, and misallocated budgets. Um, I think there's um, that's a field where you can never never stop learning. Yeah, absolutely. And with the influencer side of it and podcasters, how have you gone about choosing which ones? Because there's also, you have bigger influencers, you have more kind of these micro influencers that may have an engaged audience. Uh, how have you looked at that, Hilbert? I mean, it's like we started, you know, we started with common sense. We said, look, we're about reading and learning. Uh, let's find influencers that are, you know, that, that talk about, uh, that have a similar mission uh, where you where you would... Uh, think that their audience is interested in a product like Blinkist. And some of that worked and some of that didn't. And then we went broader. And um, one thing we found um, is that uh, podcasts that talk around about politics working really well. And we don't have a, you know, we don't have a lot of books on politics. And in general, we're not a very political brand, um, if you will. But but still, the the audience that listens to more political podcasts um, seems to seems to like Blinkist, so so we did more of that. Um, also, but um, also was very, um, uh, but but also a thin line to cross because we also didn't want to you know sponsor uh, podcasts that are too far out there um, um, <laughs> in, in terms of political views. Um, but yeah, so so we 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 started with common sense, but learned that sometimes this common sense and intuition is not a um, not a good guide sometimes you you find gold where you wouldn't have expected uh, so it's a lot about testing and having the confidence to yeah to test a little um uh, in order to learn and and going back to one of the things you had mentioned a little bit earlier with with the business and partners and everything with that i, I know on your website and looking at through blinkist you have i mean you have full-length audiobooks you have you know original content at what point did that come into play where you were going to do you know exclusive shows exclusive podcasts full-length audiobook like what time did like that come into the business so when we started blinkist we always the the, the first concept for blinkist was uh, was called weightmate and we thought we want to give you something to learn uh, to, to to make more uh, use of your waiting times um uh, to give you something meaningful to learn so we the initial idea has been much more broader focused on learning instead of just books. Um, eventually, we narrowed it down to books because we said we need to start somewhere that is uh, easy to grasp and easy to understand for people, uh, that tackles a really concrete, specific problem that people have, and that um, seems valuable enough to uh, make people pay for it. And we thought everyone has, everyone wants to read more, like a lot of people want to read more books. Everyone values books and has a willingness to pay for books so we thought if we start there we can uh, we will we will be successful but then yeah we always had the vision to 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 broaden um and and build a service that in more in, in a broader sense helps you to fit more learning into your uh, into your daily lives um and that's one why we eventually started to to go beyond books and blinks we had the insight that a lot of our customers 
use Blinkist to discover books and then want to want to engage with them um, with with a, with the long form books. So we said let's let's you know let's add audiobooks to Blinkist because we have a lot of listeners that want to that use Blinkist to discover books. So let's give them audiobooks on our platform. Um, and when it comes to originals, we we thought well we have people that that want to you know that, that come to us to to fit more learning into their lives so let's let's explore new formats and new content that can help them um, fit more learning into their lives beyond books and blinks and what you've seen there is a lot of lot of exploration not everything of, of what you see in the app has been a great success there have also been you know I've learned recently that Disney has to test around 10 concepts to find a new hit uh, a new blockbuster. <laughs> And yeah. uh, it's probably um, probably will be similar for us. We need to to explore a lot. We need to yeah, launch some things to find um, to find uh, one new format that sticks. Um, yeah, and that's the common theme of of kind of everyone I've, I've interviewed. I mean, there's so much testing that goes into this. Where I think people from the outside perspective sometimes don't really think about that. Of like, oh yeah, this company idea, and they just kind of have crushed it, but there's so much testing along the way to figure out what is the the best thing. I think that's going to work the most. Uh, and I'm sure that's kind of an ever evolving process as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I mean, basically every startup is a test, right? And you see, I don't know, no, they say 10, uh, one out of 10 startups succeeds. So you can also say there is a hit rate of, uh, <laughs> of, of 10%. Um, and then if a, a startup uh, like us, we've, we've, we've been very successful with establishing our first format, Books and Blinks. So we had a, a really good hit rate, but um, we shouldn't expect that the next format we launch will be an immediate success or that would be exceptional. Um, so we, um, yeah, um, we'll, and we need to explore. Sometimes there are people who have this instinct, you know, this gut feeling of, of what works. So you can certainly um, have, uh, yeah, have the right instinct uh, and, and have a better hit rate than uh, one out of 10. But uh, it's, it's hard to find anyone who, who can guarantee you um, um, a hit rate of 100%. Yeah. And even with that one out of 10, it's like, well, how big is that one? Yeah, <laughs> that right. succeeds. Yeah. You know, it's like it succeeds air quotes, but then some are succeeding of those of those one. Some are way bigger than others that are quote unquote True. a success. Yeah. So there's also that kind of thing as well. And, and with and with Blinkist as well, just looking, uh, you kind of on the customer acquisition, kind of on the overall offering, you have Blinkist Magazine, like a blog as well. How did that come into play with Blinkist? I mean, our magazine is a rather, uh, a whole website on our web app is rather um, a customer acquisition tool. The core, um, the core um, product is a mobile app because people want to uh, read or listen to content while they're on the go. And then it's much easier um, to, to use our mobile app. Um, but yeah, we've, we've built um, we've built a blog, the magazine on web um, to tap into both organic traffic. Uh, so sometimes some people find us via search and then end up with the uh, on the magazine and then discover Blinkist through there. But also um, the magazine is kind of the environment where we uh, drive traffic from Outbrain and Taboola, which are paid content uh, discovery engines. Um, yeah. And we need um, yeah a place where we can drive that traffic because driving that traffic directly to the app store doesn't work that well um so that's why we've, we've built the magazine 
And, and one thing too, just looking at, I know we talked about testing and this is something that's a huge concept. I'm sure you've tested this as well. Looking at something I always like to kind of look at after I've been in kind of paid acquisition and stuff is the homepage of, of, of companies. Uh, understanding your first thing is starting a free trial. That's your, your main kind of uh, call to action. Yeah. Has it always been a free trial? Has it always been seven days? Like how has that evolved of your kind of main thing from the website? Oh, we tested a lot of things there. We had uh, initially we started um, with, giving everyone um, a 24-hour free trial. Um, everyone who signs up gets this trial. You don't need to enter credit card details um, and so on. Um, but then eventually, I think two, three years ago, it became more and more like the dominant design became, you, you, know, you get a free trial in return for your credit card details. And then this free trial renews into a subscription if you don't cancel. So that has become the... Yeah, the, the dominant experience and, and, and Spotify and Netflix have uh, probably paved the way. So we said, let's test this uh, um, and then do it as well. And we saw it works much better. We, we gave a longer trial. So we gave something to customers, but also asked for credit card details and then built a stronger lock-in. Um, and yeah, that, that worked much better in the end um, in terms of yeah, getting new leads to actually start using the product and, and become paying customers. Yeah, and that, that's definitely why I ask because I know there's a lot of testing that goes into that. I mean, so many iterations to figure out that that prime real estate of your website. I mean, someone goes to Blinkist.com. It's like that is the main thing. So I'm sure there's a lot that goes into that. And one um, thing we've done recently, and that's also, I mean, we've, we haven't invented it ourselves. We've learned from Netflix, um, you know, some users. Uh, so there were two big barriers with, with this trial model. A, a lot of users were afraid to opt in to a trial because they were afraid to then be auto renewed and and, um, uh, and of forgetting to cancel um, yeah. and then some users actually forgot to cancel and then were mad um, and especially <laughs> when they purchase through Apple we have we don't have have that we don't control that flow so we can't issue a refund we need to tell them reach out to Apple and they will hopefully um, issue a refund so what we did then was to in, introduce trial reminders. So to tell people, look, we send you a push notification or an email if you come via web um, to remind you um, that your trial will renew. But for that, we need your push opt-in. Um, and so what happened is we, um, um, through this push reminder, which we um, actively advertised on the subscription screen, less users had, uh, like we decreased anxiousness of users and more users actually draw, opted in but uh, despite the, um, um, the reminder we sent, um, still a higher rate of people retained that trial because we had their push up in and could engage them more. Um, so it was a win-win-win. Uh, customers won, uh, the business won, and only a win-win, not a win-win-win. <laughs> There's probably some other yeah. one in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to go back to real quick, uh, going back to the beginning, uh, this is always kind of fascinating to me. Uh, one thing I read about was that you, at one point, saw kind of your your first person, first Blinkist in, in real life. Take me through that experience early on. You mean uh, when seeing I, someone actually on Blinkist? Oh yeah, I was a, um, I was on a train from Düsseldorf to Berlin um, because I was commuting back then um, and. Uh, yeah, uh, like I was reading or doing, doing some work in the morning and then uh, um, a, a man uh, sat next to me and started to do something on, the, on his smartphone. And I, you know, sometimes you, you just quickly check without intentional. And I saw, well, he's using Blinkist. And that was really cool to see someone that I didn't know in a random setting to, to use Blinkist. And then, well, I, I uh, started to, to talk to him, ask him, hey, um, how, how he's discovered it, how he's using it and did a 
did a four-hour user uh, uh, user interview with <laughs> on the on the ride from Düsseldorf to Berlin. It was really really cool, and that was yeah one of these small moments that uh, uh, why why I'm in it. Uh, like it's this this real life impact, seeing like we're, we're building something that um, touches. Um, or that, that provides value for uh, for so many customers, uh, and that that is an inter inter integral part of their um, of their weekly routines. It's really yeah, it's make, making me proud and making me really happy um, um, that we've come so far. Yeah, and I, I want to bring it up for a reason because <laughs> so many times as founders we're so far removed. I mean, yeah, we're you know, getting feedback from customers, but so far removed from like the actual person like there are people behind your business like every business has actual people that are using the thing you're making yeah. and that is so, so motivating to be able to see that like, i know when i've had like calls or people like talk to me in person about like the podcast or other things i've done it's like whoa like that was impactful i remember the, the first company I, I started was just go fitness a personal training business and when i had people reach out and i had i was even blogging i was like is everyone reading this blog and then i had someone reach out from a random like location in in the united states and it was like this whole letter basically of how impactful the the writing has been and i was like oh my god this is actually yeah. reaching people yeah. and that's just so motivating as an entrepreneur when we're kind of heads down every day doing yeah, the thing totally and also sometimes i underestimate it i mean i'm a pretty rational guy and i don't get um you know i sometimes i, I just underestimate it i think okay yeah we we help people to discover more books uh, and we help them to get uh, some some inspiration and some food for thought faster and yes, of course, sometimes that, uh, um, you know, um, something that, that has a, a real life impact, but um, most of the time it's rather inspiring and you maybe change a habit here or you, you, you're able to, to, to know more about um, um, a certain um, scientific um, concept. Uh, so that it's more ins inspirational knowledge. Um, I, I perceive it a lot of times as more inspirational knowledge. But then I talk to people who say and literally say this has changed my life i've discovered this and this and this concept and uh, and then adapted it and it really changed my life and i'm blown away by these stories uh um because yeah we um yeah um i, I didn't uh for long time realize that it's that impactful for so many customers. yeah Oh yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's something to to look at as, as entrepreneurs as you're building things and seeing the impact is yeah. is so tremendous. And one thing I, I'm curious about, like I read that you grew up in a village of 750 people. Well, you've done your uh, research, yeah. How, how has that impacted how you've run Blinkist and how you decided to be an entrepreneur? I'm curious about that. Hmm. I think I I think two two things that I attribute to being from a small village. I think I'm a pretty humble person and down to earth um, because I've uh, yeah I don't know in my village there's still like uh, um, uh, life is pretty normal there and 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 and, and um, I don't know how to describe it but yeah humbleness and uh, and being down to earth are uh, things that I attribute to that and that's also that shines through in my leadership style. I'm not the not the guy who um, stands in front of the people and uh, um, uh, screams how how great I am, but I rather let, <laughs> let uh, I'm, I'm more leading from the from the back uh, a little bit and let others um, or let others also take the stage. Um, and yeah, sometimes maybe that I'm, I'm too too less inspiration. I, I could be more inspirational and sometimes be you know more. Um, 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 yeah, the visionary uh, to, to, yeah. to to get people 
um, to get people excited, um, and then I'm too rational. But I think that's more a personality thing, and not not that not doesn't necessarily um, uh, correlate to to where I, where I grew up. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, to that point, I mean, the team that you've built and your co-founders and everything. I mean, obviously, you've done, you've been tremendously successful with, with Blinkist, and I'm curious as to how. I mean, how does that fit into the the kind of company culture at Blinkist, or how do you view that? Then? Really, I mean, our, one of our values is um, uh, leave egos behind. We really don't want strong egos. We want people that are in it, you know, for the that that, that are great team players and and prioritize um, team success over individual success and teams' goals over individual goals. I think maybe also that is, I mean, also my co-founders they come from from not so big cities, and maybe you know. Growing up in, a, in an environment where you still know everyone um, gives mm-hmm. the, a broader, give, gives you a stronger sense for community. Um, and if you maybe grow up in a big city, which is more anonymous, then you may be more focused on on yourself. Uh, I don't know. I'm making this up. I'm, I'm not upset about <laughs> this. Uh, but could could be related there that we have a really, yeah, that we support each other, that we have a strong sense for community and, and, and for, for teamwork and, and try to keep our egos um, at bay. Yeah, and I think it's always something to be, to be said with that because founders, you know, their backgrounds, they are the company, and especially early on, like literally, it's just them, and that dictates you know what the company becomes, and your hires as well dictate what you become, and that's a kind of a microcosm of who you are, and then it kind of dictates who you hire, uh, which then becomes your company culture, and so yeah. it like all kind of plays together as well. True. Yeah. One of the things I want to go back to as well, going back to the beginning, is a couple of things early on I kind of find fascinating. Take me through raising the first funding. I know it's 2012; is a different, it was a different time uh, as well. But raising funds off of your pitch deck, how long was that process? How did that go? Raising funds for the first time. I, the process was two to three months. Like I mean, the process from you know starting to pitch to getting a term sheet was maybe two months. But then the process of from term sheet to having a contract we can sign took another two months. That's usually um, and that, that's still the case. Uh, so it, it takes longer to draft uh, the actual contract than to find an investor um, a lot of times. And it was still, I mean, back then our first round was 150,000 euros, um, and it felt like it was an amount of money that I couldn't. Um, it was so big, you know. I didn't have yeah. I didn't have a six-digit amount. Uh, um, on my bank account, and I never, you know, I never had had so much money to, um, to at my, you know, under my control, if you will. And it felt like really felt like, look, we have we're four people that have an idea, and now someone gives us one hundred fifty thousand euros. Wow, that's, that's crazy! <laughs> it was like really, it's crazy. Uh, it was. I mean, now it's, it feels so normal. And I sometimes talk to first time entrepreneurs and, and give them advice and help them. And then I, you know, I I, I say such numbers without thinking about them uh, anymore because now obviously we raised millions uh, by now and also the seed stage, seed stage is you know it's much more evolved but back then I still thought like well this can't be true they they must be you know something must be wrong I wouldn't give myself 150,000 euros <laughs> um, it was it was just really yeah unbelievable and and really um, uh, yeah a new world to me um, but it felt good like it felt like ultimately it felt like someone. There is someone that trusts us, that thinks our idea um, is strong and has potential, and that the team, the, um, the I mean, the, the founding team and the the freelancers we had assembled by then is um, able to pull it off. That gave me a lot of confidence and, and reassurance that we're onto something. 
Yeah, and that was that was early on. So that was you know your your kind of first initial round about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You've gone on to raise you know a, a Series C. You, you've raised like over thirty million dollars for the company. How did it evolve in terms of your different rounds? I know there's uh, other entrepreneurs I've talked to. Uh, one being I'm trying to think a Bubble, uh, sorry, uh, Hubble Context. They've raised like seventy million plus, and like it's different when you raising different rounds. How did the fundraising evolve for you as you've have you raised, you know, different rounds of funding? So one thing that, you know, the the bigger you get, the more um, you need to have your data ready. In the beginning is a lot about, you know, belief. It's a lot about team. It's a lot about soft factors. And the, the bigger you grow, the more it becomes about hard factors. Uh, so with every new funding round uh, we had, investors asked new questions that, um, that pushed us to go deeper uh, in, into our data, to, to track more and, and to, to learn something new about the business. Um, when I talk to investors now, I mean, we're not actively fundraising, but I still talk to investors every now and then. And um, it's always interesting how much more, yeah, how much deeper they look into data and, and, and financials than, than early stage investors. So that's- What are maybe- yeah. Oh yeah, I was just curious, what are maybe some of those questions they're asking or what are some of those metrics they're looking at at that point once you, yeah. once you move on? Uh, fundraising rounds? I mean, the, the classic thing that everyone looks into is unit economics. They always want to know how much do you pay for acquiring a customer and how much do you make with a customer over their lifetime? Um, so that uh, relation between customer acquisition costs and lifetime value is something that, that investors uh, look uh, look at. And the, the bigger you grow, the deeper they look. You know, how does your CAC, uh, how is it uh, composed? How much paid uh, traffic is in there how much organic traffic is in there what's the channel split um do you have um, and then also for lifetime value how are renewal rates when do they flatten so when when is by in which year do you have a really really stable customer base that doesn't churn away anymore um do you have restarts um do you um how is engagement in um in relation to to dollar retention and so on so they go really deep into into those Two things basically. Also, in the last two years, payback period has become a really, um, yeah, really important metric. So not just you know you could have a really favorable CAC to LTV ratio, but still a two-year payback on marketing invest, uh, which um, gives you a cash flow problem, or also <laughs> makes you a higher risk uh, than if you if you break even on first purchase. So that's something that um, investors look into as well. Um, yeah, it's interesting to hear about that because I mean there are so many different metrics, and and from talking to some people that are a bit further along in their business, these these things evolve and get more granular on what all these are, especially when you have all this data to look at as you've gone along with the business. One thing to go back to quickly too, I mean early on with with your co-founders, how did you look at an equity split initially? I mean for our co-founders, we we started um, with with four, and we said like we we all took the same risk, we all had similar experience, similar backgrounds. Um, so we said like, let's, let's split evenly. Um, it's again, something also maybe, um, from, uh, from growing up in a, in a village, I think, uh, yeah, being, um, we didn't want a, a hierarchy there when it comes to equity because we felt everyone is taking yeah, the same risk and, uh, is giving, uh, giving everything they can. So, so let's make this an even split. With that even split, then how are you looking at decision making? Uh, with the, the, we talked about equity, right? Uh, we um, we made an even split there. In regard to decision making, we learned our lessons in the last eight years, but it also took some years. So we also started to um, approach decision making very, yeah, on a very, yeah, um, 
basis where we, you know, where we all would have a say. I mean, everyone had their had the functions that reported to them and their accountabilities, but we still would discuss a lot of things, and sometimes that also became a little more destructive um, when you know when uh, or, or took us longer to make decisions then because we would just have endless discussions about things uh, instead of empowering one person to ultimately call the shots on on a certain topic. Uh, and we've we've evolved since then, um, and and now um, there is a clear CEO, which is me, that takes the final decision in case there is no alignment. But there's other everyone else, other my co-founders and um, other executives have clear functional responsibilities, and they take decisions within their responsibilities. So one of my co-founders is a product lead, and he's he's responsible for the roadmap, and I don't overrule him there. But if it's if there's something you know where Ultimately, you can't, you know, you can't relate it to one position because it it affects marketing and product and engineering. Um, then you need a tiebreaker, and and that's me. Um, but that's yeah, that's something that we needed to learn. Uh, that in order to move fast uh, and be decisive, decisive, we um, we need to to make that clear. And one thing too, with uh, kind of going back to today, I mean, the company has grown a lot over the last eight years, you know, more than like 150 employees. And how have you looked at hiring as you've gone on? Because I think from listening to a company that has done a lot of hiring, I'm curious as to how you approach that. I mean, in general hiring in the beginning, we, we thought about hiring, okay, we need to uh, write a job ad, we need to find someone and sign the contract, and then we've hired someone. One thing we've learned is that hiring does stop when you sign a contract, but it, it, it stops when um, a new employee uh, has gone through the norming and storming phase and, and makes it to the performing phase. Then you've made a hire uh, that is really yeah, adding value. Um, so one thing is we've, I mean, we've, we've prof- professionalized the hiring and, and onboarding process in the, in the last years a lot. We are much more... Uh, structured when it comes to interviews where every interviewer has certain goals to check for we um, do um, give interviewers um, trainings how to interview what to look for how to ask the right questions and then we have a really streamlined onboarding process to make sure everyone yeah um, everyone gets on board as soon as possible so there's much more uh, much less, yeah. Every hiring manager does it how they, how, you know, how they do it, but, rather, but much more structure and much more support from our talent acquisition and people team. And that's I can highly recommend that. I, I think in um, one learning that I had, try to hire an HR person as soon as possible, or someone like an HR generalist that can take the lead on hiring, onboarding, some company processes, uh, can do some of the heavy lifting uh, when it comes to culture. Um, it's so important uh, to have this, and it's something that a lot of founders unfortunately deprioritize because it doesn't, you, it doesn't, you know, have immediate impact on revenue growth or on product engagement. It, it, it rather has a subtle impact uh, um, through the, you know, because the organization you build ultimately helps you grow your revenue or not. Um, so that's why I recommend a, an HR generalist profile um, in an early stage company. Yeah, I think I've had the echo by one or two other people who've had come on the show, and like it's hard because it's not you know directly revenue, but generating. But then it's such an important position uh, in your company, especially moving forward and as you look to expand. And 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 one thing I realized I, I missed, kind of, I wanted to discuss quickly on on the fundraising side of things as as you've gone through that process and understanding that this eight years and thirty plus million dollars, 
there's this concept of rich versus king and keeping control, uh, being more of a king versus uh, optimizing for a bigger uh, end goal payout per se or what, valuation, whatever it may be. Along the way of fundraising of a number of years, how have you kind of looked at that? Not necessarily you think in those terms, but how have you looked at it from a keeping control perspective yeah. with investors versus really trying to get the biggest company possible? Like, I'm just curious on what your mindset's been around that. For us, it was always important and still is important to stay in control. And that doesn't mean we don't need to have the majority in equity, but we need to have certain, you know, a shareholder agreement which gives us control uh, and gives us a veto i mean when investors join they have certain vetoes uh, so they have a strong control that's for sure it's i never saw um i don't know founders that you know really um, negotiated uh, that these classic investor control uh, terms out of the contracts but then um sometimes or we we said you know if you as investors have certain rights we also want them as founders, regardless of, uh, of of how much equity we hold. Um, that was really important because otherwise, I'm not an entrepreneur anymore. I'm just a, a manager that that works for an investor, and that's that's not <laughs> how I see myself, and that's not where I want to end yeah. up. That's also not how I'm paid. Uh, to, to to be honest, uh, it's um, very <laughs> different than whether you're you know a, a, a manager that has been hired or whether you're an entrepreneur, and uh, so that's really important. But obviously, we want to. We're also ambitious and want to build a big company, but we may may not take, um, you know, we, we are maybe a little less cautious when it comes to risk taking because taking a, too much of a risk and then being in a situation where you need to raise money, maybe at unfavorable terms would um, would make us lose control. And that's why yeah. uh, we, we, we take that into account when taking decisions. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it is interesting to hear everyone has a, little different opinion and view and there's obviously no right answer but uh it's nice to have that perspective and and with inherently what what blinkus does you mean key takeaways from the world's best nonfiction books for for you then how i mean how many books are you reading any favorite books that stand out for people uh, i'm really curious about that for you so my i'm i would love to read more my reading challenge on goodreads for this year is um 24 books um and i'm a little ahead of it so i may end up with uh, closer to 30 um, but yeah, it's really um, challenging year um, to fit in a lot of reading uh, because of because of Corona. Because the business is really challenging, um, and also then when the kid is at home, uh, there is <laughs> there is uh, less time to read. Um, I do read uh, both fiction and nonfiction, and that's probably like more more fifty fifty. Uh, sometimes I have phases where I want to read more nonfiction, and sometimes I have phases where I, um, where I read more fiction. Um, one book that I recommend to everyone um, is Mindset from Carol Dweck. Um, that really, that is one of the books that really I would say changed the way I think and, and had a had a had a really profound impact on my life. Um, it uh, talks about concept of a static versus a growth mindset, and all of us have both a static and a growth mindset in different situations. So um, and and being um, yeah, this book helps help helped me to be more aware of when I approach a situation with a static mindset. And then uh, through this awareness, I could change my mindset towards a growth mindset. So that's, that's really helpful. I, one of the more recent nonfiction books I read that I enjoyed a lot was uh, the latest book from Ben Horowitz, um, What You Do Is Who You Are. It's um, uh, for really cool case studies about organizational culture. So it's a really hands-on practical book uh, on how to how to build a great culture, um, which is something that I um, 
that I'm focused on at the moment because I mean we've we always have a culture we've built a great culture but in order to keep it there or in, also in order to evolve it as we as we grow as a company is is an yeah a never ending uh, never ending story <laughs> a never ending focus topic yeah, absolutely. And, and real quick, I know we're almost out of time here, but I, I am just curious with we talked a little bit before the interview, but with COVID, I mean, how has that impacted Blinkist and, and then how have you kind of looked at moving forward with this weird situation with a global pandemic? Yeah. So as a bit, I mean, as a, like we, we've been a remote company all well, like we, we had a re, pretty loose remote policy. So people, a lot of people were working remotely, so it didn't impact the organization too much. Uh, everyone coped well with working from home. But it impacted our business uh, because uh, the biggest use case for uh, Blinkist customers is to listen to our Blinks while they're commuting or while they're working out and are in a, in a gym, for example. And uh, um, thanks to COVID, no one is commuting anymore. And also workouts have become less. So there's less time uh, where people naturally um, gravitated towards Blinkist. Uh, so our challenge now is to to help customers find new days, uh, new times of the day to use Blinkist and engage with us uh, to, you know, to, to stay engaged and ultimately renew. Um, um, so this is this is challenging. We've seen big big drops there, um, but um, I believe we're through the worst. We already see uh, positive trends again, and I believe this will ultimately make us stronger because it helps us to, yeah, build strong resilience and also diversify um, how we position Blinkist and uh, and how how customers use Blinkist. For sure. And where can people go to learn more about Blinkist and all you're doing, Holger? In uh, Blinkist.com or uh, right to the App Store or Play Store um, um, and uh, download the Blinkist app. That's uh, the, the probably the better experience. The website, as I said, is an acquisition tool. You can get a lot of information <laughs> there, but if you want to really use it, um, download the apps. Yeah. Absolutely. And thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today, Holger. Thanks a lot. Uh, happy to be here. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.